From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And I'm Jennifer Shutt, budget and appropriations reporter. And we want to set the stage uh, today for what's going to be a very chaotic couple of months, starting next week with the big release of President Biden's full budget request for the coming fiscal year, uh, his first of the new administration, which does kick off in earnest the whole appropriation cycle, which is already getting going. There's a lot coming down and it's all going to happen very quickly, Jen. What do we know about the schedule? So we are expected to get President Biden's full fiscal 22 budget request on the Friday heading into Memorial Day weekend, um, which is very exciting for anyone with Memorial Day plans who also needs to read through the budget. Um, And so once we get that, that will really sort of officially start the budget and appropriations process on Capitol Hill, which is going to have a lot of different elements, potentially overlapping elements during June and July heading into that customary August recess that um, members of both chambers of Congress, um, as well as people who work in and around the Capitol, hold somewhat sacred. And so there's going to be a lot of legislation moving through the chambers and a lot of uh, debates happening on what to do with federal spending in the upcoming fiscal year that is slated to begin on October 1st. And it sounds like, at least in the House, that's going to get going with something known as a deeming resolution, which will allow uh, the House Democrats most likely to set their total spending level for discretionary spending in fiscal year 22, which will allow the Appropriations Committee to get going there. Uh, But one of the big debates happening right now is just how much to increase defense discretionary spending and non-defense discretionary spending in the upcoming fiscal year, particularly given the numbers in President Biden's skinny budget request, which is already out. Republicans are very frustrated that defense spending would only increase by about 1.7% compared to inactive levels, whereas non-defense spending would increase by about just under 16%. And so this is going to be one of the really big fights during the next few months on Capitol Hill, which we already saw get going this week in the Senate with an amendment. Yeah, uh, and I covered that. And it is an interesting thing, Jen, because folks should remember, this is the first time in a decade that we're having an appropriations process without any spending caps already in place. This, This old deficit reduction law from 2011 had imposed a decade's worth of spending caps, statutory spending caps for discretionary spending, so that lawmakers knew going in what the overall limit had to be for defense and non-defense spending. There were efforts periodically to raise those spending caps through negotiation, but they had sort of a starting point. This year, that's not the case. There, there There is no limit to even go off of And the only thing they do have is President Biden's uh, limits from his discretionary spending request, which is already out there that came out last month, which, as you said, created this huge disparity between basically flat defense spending and a huge boost, about 16% boost for non-defense spending. Uh, And that's created quite a fight that we saw play out 
Thursday on the Senate floor, which was very interesting because Republicans made a push. They used really an unrelated bill having to do with trying to be more competitive against China uh, in, in research development, semiconductor industry. But they used that bill to say, hey, if you think we need to be competitive against China, we need to be competitive militarily against China too, and you can't ignore defense spending. And so you had two top Republicans, um, Richard Shelby of Alabama, the top, the top ranking member on appropriations, and Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, who has the arms, top Republican on Armed Services Committee, offer this amendment uh, designed to ensure equal increases in defense and non-defense spending on those grounds that you just can't you just can't boost non-defense at this and and so that's this is the return of the so-called parity principle that had been playing into budget deals over the last decade um every time they tried to renegotiate what the spending caps should be both sides because they needed a bipartisan agreement to do it both sides sort of agreed to this idea of parity that any increase in defense would be accompanied by an, an equal increase in non-defense and so Republicans this week were trying to make that case again, saying, let's not abandon parity. Let's make sure we have equal increases in defense and non-defense. But this time, that is a non-starter with Democrats. Um, and I do think that, that Shelby and Inhofe sort of kicked themselves in the head a little bit on this one by writing their amendment way too broadly um, because the appropriations chair, Patrick Leahy, was able to sort of skewer them by saying, this applies so broadly that, that if we did a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, we would then have to do a $2 trillion defense bill. And by the way, there's no way the Pentagon could spend $2 trillion. You know, right now, they, we spend about $700 billion a year in defense. There's no way they could spend $2 trillion. Um, so it becomes what he called absurd. Um, so I, 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 it does strike me that the amendment was written way too broadly, and so it was sort of easy to tear down. But this fight, the amendment was defeated, we should say, pretty easily. But what's important about it, I think, is that that set the stage for the fight we're going to see as the budget gets unveiled and the fights we're going to be having in coming weeks, because Republicans are not going to give up this fight for parity. They're going to want to push defense spending up and Democrats are not willing to play that game anymore. They say defense is already half of all discretionary spending. You've got the progressive wing of the Democratic Party saying we need to cut defense spending by at least 10 percent. So there is not there is not the consensus here on how how they're going to come up with top lines for defense and non-defense. Yeah, this is going to be a fight that I think definitely extends past the summer. Obviously, the House and Senate Appropriations Committee need leaders of, at the very least, they're the Democratic Party to reach some type of agreement on how much they're going to be spending during fiscal 22 so that they can divide that total number up into the 12 government funding bills. Um, but I don't think that's going to be the final number in either the House or Senate by any means. And we do know that the House Appropriations Committee is planning to mark up its bills in late June and early July. And that House Democratic leader, Steny Hoyer, wants to get all of the appropriations bills off the House floor before the August recess begins. So we do know that that's kind of the state of play in the House. 
the Senate is much murkier in terms of when we're going to see a markup in the Senate Appropriations Committee and whether or not any of those bills are even going to go to the Senate floor. We have seen some dates from Senate appropriations in terms of when senators need to submit their, their earmark requests or their community project funding requests, whatever you really want to refer to those as. Um, and so we know that a lot of those are coming up in, in late June and early July, but we don't actually know if we're going to see the Senate Appropriations Committee um, mark up any bills before the August recess. And then I don't believe the Senate is scheduled to return until uh, mid-September. I think it's September 13th, uh, at which point in time you only have a couple weeks to negotiate that stopgap spending bill, that continuing resolution, and any anomalies that need to go on there, pass that through both chambers and get that signed into law before October 1st. And so there's not a whole lot of time, I don't think, for appropriations staff and appropriators to dedicate in September to a markup process. And so we know this is something that Senate Appropriations Chairman Leahy wants to do, but just in terms of looking at the calendar, getting all 12 bills marked up in Senate approps is going to be a really kind of sort of challenge in terms of just fitting it in in terms of every lawmaker's schedule. And at the same time, though, as difficult as this fight over spending levels is, if they want to do a big infrastructure package, they're going to need, uh, with only Democrats through budget reconciliation, they're going to need to adopt a budget resolution that triggers all these fights uh, over spending levels. Yeah, exactly. And so what we get in terms of a budget resolution uh, could sort of be really broad, right? And so we know that House Budget Chairman John Yarmuth does plan to mark up a budget resolution. Right now, he believes that'll happen sometime during the month of June. Um, but Yarmuth, you know, is kind of great from a reporter's perspective because he is always very honest with us about, um, you know, what he thinks is going to happen. And he um, said something, you know, really blunt this week that he thinks the budget resolution over there for fiscal year 22 is going to be, quote, an exercise in futility, because I don't think we can get a defense number that all our members can vote for. And we probably can't get a non-defense number that all of our members will vote for, end quote. And so, you know, this is a really big struggle. And so this is one of the things that he said he wasn't particularly confident that he would be able to actually bring a full fiscal year 22 budget resolution to the House floor because he's not sure the votes will be there. And so then we kind of get back into this shell budget resolution talk where if House Democrats really cannot get the votes around, you know, that full tax and spending blueprint um, you know, would they do a shell again like they did with the fiscal year 21 shell, kind of bare bones, just what you're legally required to put in there, and then reconciliation instructions to get some type of infrastructure package moving? Um, and then, you know, what would happen in the Senate? Does Senate Budget Chairman Bernie Sanders feel that he needs to write his own budget resolution? Would the Senate take up a House shell? I mean, there's just so many unanswered questions right now in a very, very limited amount of time, especially in terms of, you know, the timelines that Congress is used to working under to get all of this done. And so I am really curious to see how they just even schedule all of this out, let alone 
get actual legislation approved in the next couple of months. Yeah, it's not looking pretty. And on top of all of that, of course, uh, the House this week managed to squeak through uh, an emergency spending bill for capital security. It was a one-vote margin, Jen. This doesn't look very hopeful. Yeah, this was a really dramatic vote on the House floor. And it seems like in the end, Democratic leadership was able to convince a few of their more progressive members to vote present um, instead of voting no, because if they had gotten a few more no votes, this Capitol Hill security supplemental would not actually have passed the House because Republicans really kept their members in line on voting against this. And some of the main concerns here are that it sounds like Republicans don't support Democrats moving forward right now. They want the architect of the Capitol to complete its investigation and its sort of assessment of security flaws. They want the House Administration Committee to overhaul the U.S. Capitol Police Board. And there are concerns from Republicans, as well as Senate Appropriations Chairman Pat Leahy, about this $200 million item that would create a quick reaction force that would be housed within the D.C. National Guard. We've heard that, well, there's a lot of respect for the National Guard and everything that they've been doing um, to bolster security at the Capitol since the January 6th insurrection, as well as their general sort of mission as the National Guard in terms of natural disaster response, that they really view this quick response force, if they were to create it, as a law enforcement entity. And they also want it um, under the jurisdiction of the various, the houses of Congress, right? So if there were a quick reaction force, it would be subject to congressional um, members and congressional leadership the way that the Capitol Police and the sergeants at arms are now. And so it sounds like uh, Senate Probes Chairman Pat Leahy and Ranking Member Richard Shelby, as well as various stakeholders in the House and Senate, are essentially going to have to open up this bill and renegotiate it um, on a lot of elements. And um, Roy Blunt, a Missouri Republican who's really, really great at giving you the pulse of his party, doesn't expect this Capitol Hill security supplemental to pass before the August recess. And he said that he thinks that the earliest that it would get approved um, is, you know, heading into October 1st, which is him sort of, you know, saying it could be attached to a continuing resolution. Yeah. The lesson I took away from that, Jen, is there's really no bipartisan support for anything. I mean, you know, they couldn't do emergency pandemic relief on a bipartisan basis this year. And now, so far at least, they can't do emergency spending to protect the capital uh, and pay the cost of the of the January 6th insurrection on a bipartisan basis either. This is going to have to be renegotiated if they can do it at all. Um, if they can't do those things on a bipartisan basis, um, where where does that leave the infrastructure proposal or the annual spending bills? It really does seem, and you know, partisan tensions are just at such a fever pitch now. It really does seem pretty bleak. Yeah, and there are, you know, there was a lot of comments on the House floor from Republicans yesterday during debate on the Capitol Hill spending bill, um, security spending bill, that they believe that it is needed, that there is general consensus that the National Guard, the Capitol Police, 
They need money um, to address the response to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. You know, there's a lot of agreement that Capitol Police need additional manpower, additional equipment, um, you know, the money going to various federal law enforcement agencies that responded on January 6th as well. Um, you know, prosecution for the individuals that have been charged with crimes related to, um, you know, entering the Capitol on that day and committing various crimes. Um, you know, there's sort of broad agreement for all of that, but there is some concerns about how these negotiations broke down in the House and, um, you know, exactly how some of these overhauls should be structured going forward. And while it's been several months since the attack took place, there are still some concerns that there hasn't been a comprehensive enough review um, of where this funding needs to go in terms of bolstering security at the Capitol, not just in terms of, um, you know, individual law enforcement, um, but also, you know, how uh, capital security needs to be, um, I think the word everyone's using is sort of hardened, right? And how um, how capital police and the architect of the Capitol and the sergeant at arms would walk that very, very thin line between ensuring that the security at the Capitol is, you know, sufficient to avoid um, injury or death to members while also avoiding what several have referred to as a militarization of the Capitol. And so that's really complicated and really, really difficult to do in a way that you would have, you know, all members of the House and Senate saying, yes, we agree to this, or, you know, a broad swath of them agreeing to these proposals. And so it sounds like they want a lot more details before they move this, this spending package forward. So we'll look to see how they resolve this uh, security spending bill. And, and of course, uh, the big budget release next week, uh, where we should get a sense for the first time of Biden's long-term fiscal plans, we should say. There should be a 10-year forecast does he ever is he ever able to balance the budget? How much how much do his tax policies raise revenue? Um, where does he see uh, the trend line going on entitlement programs? All of that will be coming out in the budget that we'll be looking at next week. One programming note before we go on that: um, we're going to be taking a break from the podcast next week as we furiously try to uh, scramble for the release of the budget next Friday. But we'll be back the following week to do a deep dive on what's in that budget and, and what it means for the process going forward. And CQ will be covering it all for you. You can check CQ.com or RollCall.com for all our budget coverage uh, next Friday. That does it for us today. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can always drop us an email. The address is CQPodcast, one word, at cqrollcall.com. The CQ Budget Podcast is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. Thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And I'm Jennifer Shutt, budget and appropriations reporter. You can always stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or just Google the phrase CQ Budget Podcast. And we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.